And hello, you're all very welcome to Can Projects, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature, and wellness. And I'm your co-host, Shane McKay. And I'm your other co-host, Christopher Sneed. Here at Can, we like to focus on open and inclusive dialogue, and we have a great returning guest for lined up for you. Yeah, Jack O'Sullivan, the director of the Zero Waste Alliance Ireland. And as Chris mentioned, Jack is a returning guest. This is the it's actually the third year that we, we, we have Jack on. Um, he was with us in 2021. Yeah, one nearly one. I think it was our first main guest that we had on. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And so there's actually five other podcasts available there on Can Projects. So you can go and learn about zero waste and all kinds of really, really important environmental stuff. And we're going to be getting into, we're going to be getting a little bit deeper today and touching on the circular economy will be one of the main things and kind of, you know, challenges in the space for environmental uh, awareness groups and important stuff that's kind of really c- coming to the front in a lot of ways, Chris, right now. Yeah, it's in the news. It's, you know, every, people are starting to talk about it, which is a good thing. Because, yeah. I mean, the more people talking about it, the more people are pushing the boulder up the hill. That's it. And uh, that's something Zero Waste actually are looking for is more people to help and kind of keep the ball rolling. That's it. They need volunteers, guys, okay? And they do amazing, really, really important work. So if you're somebody out there who feels like you'd like to contribute to positive social and environmental change, do get in touch with Zero Waste Alliance Ireland. You'll find Zero Waste Alliance Ireland on places like LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and their website is zwai.ie. Jack, as we said, is the director of Zero Waste Alliance Ireland, and the alliance started actually as an anti-landfill and anti-incineration group. They held meetings out in Hudson Bay Hotel at Lone. So they were going for a bit before, but they were registered as a not-for-profit company in 2003. So that's 30 years ago, folks, okay? They really, really know their stuff. It's really important that they get more help, okay? Because they have so much experience, it's really invaluable the, the, the expertise that they can bring to these conversations they know their stuff inside out super important work and i'm really excited to, to learn more about that jack's a very busy guy and we are absolutely very very feel very lucky that he's taking the time out to come and talk yeah. with us here at cam projects today so jack how are you doing i'm well i'm good and it's great to be with you again as you mentioned it's not my first time being a guest on can projects and i'm delighted to be in front of you again and have a chat there's so much going on and so many interesting things happening and a few things not happening as well of course we're not exactly the the best country on the planet when it comes to looking after the environment and handling our waste but we're we're getting there and as as uh, shane said um, Zero Waste Alliance Ireland is a member of the European Environment Bureau, which has consultative status with um, European Commission. Um, we're also a member of the Waste Working Group of the um, EEB, as we call it. We're a member of the Built Environment Group for the reason that an awful lot of the building and construction in Ireland end up as waste. We don't. We shouldn't be demolishing buildings. We should be repurposing them, deconstructing them. We're also linked into the Irish Green Building Council, and we have strong links with other organizations too as well, because we believe in very much in collaborating. But that's where we are. We're a very small organization, started off with half a dozen members. The last couple of years now, we've moved up to a little bit more than 20, to something like 25. 
Yes, not yes, but but we're really looking for more members, uh, preferably people who have an interest, who can help us in some specialist way, and who are willing to help um, put together uh, submissions to the Irish government organisations. For example, this coming next week now, we have a serious deadline for making a submission to the Department of Environment and Climate Change on Ireland's bioeconomy. They might ask, is that relevant to zero waste? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Will you, man- will you manage a bioeconomy? It can be managed well or it can be managed in a desperately bad way. At the moment, I think, and also the way we're managing our bioeconomy is not good. And the discussion document issued by the, de- the two departments, that's DECC, and as well as that to the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and the Marine, is basically a kind of a well, it talks about business and growth, all that kind of stuff. Very, very little about the fact that we're living on a finite planet. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, Jack, and it's something that I can, we're going to actually really focus on a lot more, and we might touch on it a little bit today, about essentially how, in as far as I see it, and me and Chris are in agreement on this, is whatever about politics and the government and things like that, you know, you can address that to a degree, but as long as we don't actually have the model, the governance model right, we won't get it right. So things like zero waste and the circular economy all kind of comes into that. So just to get the ball rolling, Jack, for people, I know there's going to be a lot of people tuning in. We've got we've got followers out there who are really interested in zero waste. Anytime we put zero waste out, um, it gets people are interested. But there's also a lot of people who wouldn't have heard what is zero waste exactly. So what is the definition of zero waste, Jack, please? Okay, that's a very good starting question. Um, if you think of everything we use, it comes from the planet itself. We mine stuff, we extract stuff from the earth, we manufacture it, we process it, we transport it. It appears in the shelves of a shop. It could be a refrigerator, it could be a mobile phone, it could be anything, a piece of furniture, even a building. At the end of its useful life, it goes into a landfill, or worse still, it goes into an incinerator. Zero waste is basically redesigning everything we use so that it can be repaired or reused. Think about this. Say, for example, that your car is designed for zero waste. Now, at the moment, they're not. They're just crushed up and burned at the end of their life. But the car could be taken apart in about three hours by a mechanic. And all the steel goes into one bin, the aluminium into another, five different kinds of plastic into five separate bins, at last into another bin, rubber into another bin. And then each of those materials goes back to being recycled. And maybe before they're even recycled, perhaps the components can be repaired. I remember reading a long time ago that one particular company making printers, um, I remember their name now, I'm old. You didn't buy a printer off them, you leased it. And basically, um, at the they would repair it. At the end of its useful life, they would take it back. They would cannibalize it for parts. And um, any part that was reusable would be reused. If it wasn't quite so good, it could be remachined. If it wasn't good enough, then it'd be melted down. But nothing goes into a landfill. Nothing goes into an incinerator. That is what we call zero waste. It's very close to the circular economy. And sustainability, because circular economy 
is a system whereby anything that we produce um, is not thrown away at the end of its useful life, uh, but is turned into something else. And that has a great value as well, too, guys, because, you know, if we throw something away, it's a big cost. We burn it, we turn it into a landfill. If that raw material or the components of the whatever we've been using can be turned into another product or used to make another product, and that's the circular economy, we're not implementing it. In Ireland now, for example, if I go to my local wonderful uh, civic amenity site where I can bring my stuff I don't want, I don't say waste. We don't produce waste. We produce discarded stuff. It only becomes waste when, when you mix it all and put it into a bin. If I bring my discarded stuff to a, um, one of these civic amenity sites, say run by Westmeath County Council, and they might be, I might have some timber I don't want, I might have some concrete blocks, I might have plastic, paper. Now, if I see something there that somebody else has put in there, that I might think I, I could do with that. I'm not allowed to take it away. Yeah. If I do take it away, I'm warned off by some engineer. Now, the, ga- the, the lads working in the, in, in the site are okay. They will let you take stuff away. I found a lovely garden hose, for example. Said to one of the lads, you mind if I take that? Oh, take that away. It'll save us money because we have to pay a waste management company to, to put into an incinerator or a, or a landfill. So, and yet I remember going to a similar site in Belgium and there were people bringing stuff in in cars. And somebody might have built a wall or ordered too many concrete blocks just to make sure he had enough. So he got six or seven left over. He puts them down on the ground. Within five minutes, somebody's looking at them and putting them into a car and taking them away. That's kind of a circularity. Hmm. Why are we not doing that in Ireland? I've actually had that argument a few times in the civic community places. And and look, I could use that plywood. I could use that. That, That's something I could. And they go, no, you're not allowed. It's against the rules. (laughs) Absolutely crazy. And I think a lot of it is due to the fact that we've actually handed over our entire waste system to private industry. Now, this has been criticized by the Consumer uh, consumer and Competition uh, Commission, which is a government kind of agency. And they said in one sentence, the government has lost control of waste. So you've got industry associations like LEPAC, very, very powerful waste companies. They have deep pockets. They gather a lot of money, because think of the millions of people who pay 11 or 12 euro per bin per week. That's a lot of money. And so they can lobby and have lobbied the government try to make recycling more difficult. So, for example, look at um, Slovenia. One single waste management company, government-owned. The state can say, okay, I want you to recycle that much. and Or... or here, you, the government can't do that because they've literally lost control. And yeah. so this is things where we're... And, and there's competition, of course, so-called competition between mm. the different management companies, which means in a housing estate, you might have three different lorries collecting bins on three different days of the week. Mad. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's quite wasteful, which is really the core kind of thing about this. So as far as the circular economy, Jack, like I I was really encouraged there now in the last year or two when I saw, I think it was Leo Varadkar at a, at a press conference. It was not too long after we had you on and I think Piotr as well over there from the EEB. And all of a sudden, wow, they're talking about the circular economy. And so it got a mention, but since then I haven't really heard a lot. So where are we as far as, okay, it's on the map now, the circular economy, they're talking about bringing it in, but like what kind of actions are we starting to see that that's implementing that? And because we know that's going to help things like the energy crisis and, and cost of living and all these kinds of things. So where are things now and where is it looking like it's going? Like it's still quite slow, really. It's very slow. And by the way, I've just remembered the name of that company that recycles its printers and photocopiers, the Xerox. Oh, yeah. Maybe others do as well. That's the only name I have. Yeah, it is gone very slowly. We have a much better waste action plan now. Uh, legislation was passed last year. But passing legislation and having policies is one thing. And we are quite good at producing wonderful policy documents. We're very, very poor at implementing them. And this is where it's been extremely slow. We're still exporting something like 70% of our waste. So between exporting it, handing it over to incinerators, burning it in cement plants, we are not doing well. And, and um, so, so you asked the definition of zero waste a moment ago, and it's hard to find. It basically mm. is um, designing everything we use. You've got to start in the design stage so that that object, whatever it is, packaging, and it's a, a fridge, a car, a piece of furniture, a building is designed to be taken apart, be reused, to be recycled, to be repaired. And nothing in it should be toxic because that immediately makes it the job of repairing, um, reusing, repurposing much more difficult. So that would be the definition. I think one thing that is, is worth mentioning is we did see the common charger uh, law come into effect, but that was they were trying for years for that. That took so long to actually to get that through. It does, Shane. This is the problem we're up against all the time. Both in Europe and in Ireland, industry has huge lobbying power. If an industry can grab, I won't say make money, the only thing that actually make money are counterfeiters and central banks. Industries and everyone else takes money from some other uh, entity, whether it's the taxpayer, the user, whatever. Um, and so a lot of the industries involved in even mobile phones, you mentioned about the common charger, they have incredible lobbying power. And there's about six or seven or eight lobbyists for every single member of the European Parliament. But they're trying their damnedest to keep the legislation in a way that will not affect the profits that they make. And the profits that they make are humongous. And the difficulty we have here all the time is that while the European Commission is trying hard, they're up against the lobbying power of industry. The governments of member states are not behaving very well either. When, for example, the Commission found that Apple was not paying its tax and there was an announcement that the commission would take a case against Apple. 
what did the Taoiseach do even before he saw the papers in the case? Immediately said, we will support Apple against the European Commission. Everyone in Europe was horrified. Yeah, well, it, that's, it's like, that's corporate greed. Like, what's that? that's not representing the people. That's representing corporate interests. Yes, that's exactly it. Well, if you have a belief system which is strongly stuck in our civil service, that governments can't do much. We see this in, in housing, for example. Mm. Oh, we can't do it ourselves. We must get speculators and builders and, and vulture funds to do the job. They have the money, they can build the houses. But they only have the money because we give them the tax breaks. And, for example, we don't often see how a company that's going to spend money in some big project locally, they want it back again. I remember when the incineration was proposed for um, Ring's End, a lot of people were against it. But there was a big headline saying, American company will spend 500 million in our area. Fantastic. But think about it. They want that 500 million back with interest to all the waste which goes to the incinerator and which you have to pay for if you bring it in the door. And not only that, they have a lovely system going because they did a deal with Dublin City Council. And if Dublin City Council cannot supply 360,000 tonnes of burnable waste every year, the City Council has to pay the company. It's totally backwards. can't lose. That kind of a contract has given them the strength to go to a bank in Europe and borrow the money to build the incinerator. But they do even better. Um, they have two companies, one in Ireland, one in, in Luxembourg. The Luxembourg company borrows from the European Central Bank at about 2%. That company lends the money to the Irish company at 13.5%. The Irish company registered in Ireland, operating the incinerator, has to service a loan of about four or five hundred million at 13 and a half percent interest. Wouldn't your heart bleed for them? We won't make any money and they won't pay any tax. But there's a company in Luxembourg which has borrowed money at around two percent or one and a half percent, has lent it out at 13 and a half percent. These make a huge killing. But that mm. money will go off into the into some place, Maldive Islands. You just don't know. Yeah. Some sort of tax haven. <laughs> That's right, Chris Emerson. We've let this happen. Now, the European Commission and the OECD are trying very hard to stop this. But we're ambivalent about it in Ireland. We want these companies here because, quote-unquote, they give employment. They also can, if they're not rigidly and properly controlled, they can make Ireland become like a tax haven itself. And we have a reputation through the um, that services, financial services centre in Dublin, of being a kind of a an, a money laundering place. It's not good. No, no, that's it. And like to to to, to try and build an 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 a sustainable economy around something like that is just yeah. it's diff- it, I mean, if that kind of industry is calling the shots, or if they have got a lot. Of Power, then it's very difficult to bring in a properly sustainable uh, society. And you've introduced sustainability there now, Shane, it's very important. One of the things we find, and I give lectures on sustainability, 
One of the problems is a lot of people do not fully appreciate the effect of being really sustainable will have if we are sustainable. And I approach it like this. Think about a group of people living in a rainforest. It could be a tribe, say, for example. And they've lived for 10,000 years. And the rainforest is still just as good after them as before them. They've not damaged it in any way. They're using it, but they're not using it at a stage where they're destroying it. That is sustainability. Now, I think if somebody who um, earns 100,000 a year and spends 120,000, he's going to run into trouble. But that's what our economy is like. We're actually borrowing from the future. Mm-hmm. And also, we're stealing from other people. Mm-hmm. The person who's earning 100,000 and spends 120,000 a year, how does he manage? He steals from his neighbors. So that's what we're doing. So developed countries are basically taking resources from the undeveloped countries at very low cost, not paying them a proper amount of money, and so creating poverty and inequality. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's 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 so unjust, and that's where the the, the whole conversation around climate justice is really centered on 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 that kind of thing. Because Mary Robinson first raised the concept of climate justice. It's very important, and you cannot have true sustainability as long as there is poverty and inequality. Sustainability means living sustainably from an environmental perspective, living within the carrying capacity of the planet. It also means that there should be social sustainability, that societies can manage to live and not destroy each other mm. or destroy it each other. Sh- it should be holistic. There should be a, a holistic approach to these things, not just felt like we're talking about the economy and profit and, oh, that's that's the measure of success. Is like our bottom line is the measure of success. But it negates so much of these other like really important things that, you know, like... It, if, if, as a society, we were healthy, we would be sustainable. We're not. We're. We are not. We're dysfunctional as a society in the developed, the so-called developed world. In many ways, we are. And Shane, what you said there now is very the holistic view. We basically see. You mentioned we talked about sustainability. We talked about climate change, zero waste. We have about four different critical points or crises. There's a climate crisis. There's a biodiversity extinction crisis. There's a global food crisis. And there's a global health crisis. And all of these are linked to each other. The more we exploit um, areas of the world where we come into contact with wild creatures, as we've done by turning huge amounts of forest into plantations or palm oil and so on, mm. the more likely that we will pick up viruses which have mutated and moved, say, from monkeys to people. That's one problem. And then we're also producing food in an extraordinarily wasteful way. Uh, in Zero Waste Alliance Ireland, we have campaigned against the wasting of food, simply because wasting occurs, and we've written to the European Commission about this, waste occurs at harvesting, waste occurs because some of the products are not Good enough to show in the shops, like uh, tomato. Yeah. Might be. It was like the bananas have to be like a certain angle, or it doesn't make it onto the shelf. Like it's 
Cucumbers aren't naturally straight. That's true. Cucumbers are curly. That's right. We have a wrong diet. There's a wonderful crowd called the Lancets. They publish a journal, a very famous medical. Mm. They're, they're actually the oldest medical journal in existence. Yes, that's right. They're, they're, I think they started in the 17th century. And they have been called a healthy diet for healthy planet. And we're not eating healthily. Far too much meat. Huge amounts of the global uh, land is taken up by cattle. Um, it's extremely inefficient. We should move much more to a plant-based diet. So that is part of, this, of the problem. Then we have this energy crisis also. We become addicted to energy, using energy as if it was there for the taking. Now, we could have as much energy as we wanted from the sun. Mm. The solar energy falling on the earth would satisfy all our needs. What have we done instead? Burned coal, oil, and gas. What has that done to the atmosphere? Increased the greenhouse gas concentrations. Results, major climate change. And the climate change is not going away. And despite all the talk and all the conference of the various parties, COP26, 27, 28, you look at the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. It's a steady upward curve. That doesn't look good. Yeah, and there's like we just we see so much talk all the time, and but it's like, when are we going to actually like you know? Oh, we're going to do this down the road, and it's just kind of it's more the same. And there there was an interesting thing there I came across where like some of these like big uh, petroleum kind of companies. I won't mention specific. I don't have the exact data in front of me, so I won't mention. But it was all over the news that a very very well known. Uh, petrol-based company knew way back in the 70s exactly where they, they predicted where things are right now today to a scary degree. They knew about it and what they decided to do was suppress the information. I read about that only in the last couple of years, Jade. It's absolutely true that we thought they didn't know. They did know. Of course they knew. Very good research. The research told them what was going to happen, and they made a corporate decision to hide the information and pretend it's not happening. There's a colleague of mine, he's um, a, a lawyer in London. Uh, he, his father died in the um, Betelgeuse disaster in Whitty Island in 1979. And he's been pushing very hard to get accepted in Europe a crime called corporate manslaughter. Mm. Basically where a company like Gulf did in Bantry um, deliberately removed the escape ladders, didn't repair the telephone, downgraded the firefighting system, did about six things which they should not have done. Result, 50 people died. Or the shipping company that owned the tanker did not maintain her properly. Result, 50 people died. So at the moment, in law, if a company does something which results in deaths, maybe multiple deaths, even one or two deaths would be too many, it's very hard to make that company responsible. That's why a crime called corporate manslaughter, where a company is held to be responsible and has to pay a penalty. And, you know, the whole mixture is you've got some very, very good companies doing some good things, and you've got an awful lot of people who are doing very bad things. Mm. Oil industry and tobacco, I'd put on the bottom of the file as the very worst. And again, it's because if you have any industry, 
where they can see the possibility or actually actually can grab huge amounts of money. It seems to warp them some. If they make a reasonable amount of money and the industry is small, they, they can be held to account more easily. Once the, that industry becomes a big international industry, there's huge amounts of cash at its disposal and can move money anywhere around the world. Somehow they seem to believe that they are so important, like banks, that mm. they can't be touched. And they will fight, um, as a matter of principle, any kind of regulation. It's actually not, not even if the regulation is good or bad, they will still fight it on the principle that governments shouldn't interfere with business. And that's a very strong ethic. Well, I wouldn't call it, it's a very strong ideology. But we're still suffering from it in Ireland. It was promoted by the Chicago School of Economics, by Harvard, taken up by Reagan. Remember Reagan? (laughs) Order on industry. Let's slim down government. Uh, use taxes, that industry controlled itself. Thatcher loved it. Of course, she killed off the, the mining and the industry and the steel industry in Britain, destroyed the country uh, as far as manufacturing. We've taken it on here as well, too. We've had quite a lot of good industries in Ireland set up by the state, working well. What did we do? Sell them off. And it's happening all over Europe. Uh, Lithuania had a lovely oil refinery uh, built by the Soviets when Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union. So what did they do? They sold it to the Americans, who promptly sold it to the Poles. So back again to to Russia. What did we do with Telecom Air? We sold it off. And so if you look at, for example, um, the company that measures the speed of broadband all around the world, I mean, you can get it on your mobile phone or your computer if you want to check the speed of your broadband. Ireland is down around number 79. And we should be up around four or five. Our broadband speeds are low. Uh, we have all these competing companies offering the phone and broadband, but you're paying far more because they're all spending huge amounts of money in advertising. They're not really in competition with each other. They pretend to be in competition. Um, they're not um, really controlled. Look at the amount of money one man made by buying access to parts of Ireland's uh, microwave network and set up the second mobile phone company mm. and then for billions. Mm. So we give away our infrastructure. We let, now, I don't mind we shouldn't, uh, governments shouldn't be making bicycles or biscuits. But I do believe that things like roads and rail, look what's happened in England, water supplies, parts of our essential infrastructure should not be given to private industry because they will simply use it to exert power over the state and over the people. And in a lot of cases, like the private sector, they're in the money business more than that. It's a business they do. They're more concerned with the bottom line, really. And for them, that's that's a measure of success then, you know. And so th- I think that, that that speaks to some of the points 
you're making there, Jack. And you, you touched on some really important stuff there that I'd, I'd, I'd really know that we have the opportunity to speak with you again. I can. Um, a really important question, uh, and, and, and given that um, you have so much experience, uh, not just with zero waste, but your other environmental work that you've done, um, uh, just simple things like picking up stuff off beaches and things like that. What kind of, what are the, what are the biggest challenges yeah, it's a big question now, but what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, groups in the environmental space are kind of, I, I wouldn't even say 20 years ago, but right now today, what are the big challenges as far as moving this conversation in the right direction at a better pace? Oh, Shane, that's a very important question and a very good one. At 20 years ago, and still to some extent today, environmental organizations are tolerated. Now, you will find that some governments, I would think the Dutch particularly, and some others as well, are quite good at supporting their environmental organizations. We get supported through the Irish Environmental Network, which gets money from the Environment Fund. Every time a lorry brings waste into a landfill, there's a charge on that. Um, at the same time, you look at the way environmental organizations are treated and you find that they are, well, they're accepted. And about once a year, we have a discussion with the Department of the Environment or we have a discussion with the, discussion with the EPA. But if we question any of the sacred cows, like, for example, let's have more development, let's have more data centers government policy, or let's have more wind turbines. Immediately, we are told, oh, you're holding up progress. And this is one of the problems, that the role of environmental organization is not properly recognized. We're not seen as partners. Now, individual government ministers are quite good. They will talk to us. More government ministers and government departments are and that concludes part one with our very special guest, environmental expert Jack O'Sullivan, the director of Zero Waste Alliance Ireland. Do go and check them out at zwai.ie. We've got part two lined up for you in the description. Podcast audio for show one and two. The video for part two will be out next week. So please do follow us so you get a notification when that's out. And here's a clip from part two. You put your finger on it when you said balance sheet economics. If you look, for example, at a railway company, and we did this in the 1960s, not making money to close it down. But the economic cost of removing all those railway lines, the cost to the country was huge. Fishermen couldn't get their fish from Baltimore to London. They could do it in 24 hours up to the 1940s. Towns in Ireland that were supplied with regular rail service like Trim died economically. Now everybody has to own cars and lorries and now we're stuck completely with an addiction to road transport. If you look at Europe, they're pushing rail big time. And you can transport far more cheaply goods and freight by rail. And you can electrify the whole thing and the cost in terms of kilowatt hours or energy per ton kilometer or passenger kilometer is much less. 
please do check out and follow ZWAI online, whether you're on Instagram, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, please do go and follow them. They need volunteers, guys. They do amazing, really, really important work. So if you're somebody out there who feels like you'd like to contribute to positive social and environmental change, do get in touch with Zero Waste Alliance Ireland. Their website is zwai.ie. I would really encourage people, go to zwai.ie. That's it for now from Cam Projects. Everybody keep well, and if you can, help each other, help us all. And the Cam Projects email is camprojects.info at gmail.com. And you'll find a link to the Cam Projects website in the description. All the best.